Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Villa News Podcast. We are still riding high from a hell of a weekend at the hell of the north. Perubay Fims, Perubay, back-to-back racing. I am Ben Delaney, joined today by Jim Cotton, just back from traveling from France to England. What a weekend that was, Jim. Oh, it sure was. It was it was hell of a weekend, uh, to, to coin a phrase. I've, I've just about kind of cleaned all the dust and dirt out of my, uh, out of my ear holes uh, and uh, just about sort of made sense of what happened in a, a, a truly crazy weekend of racing. I hope I hope you can help me make sense of what happened because I've, you know, watched and rewatched both, you know, the full length events and the highlights and looked at my notes that I'm still upside down as to what the heck was going on. You know, one thing I've often enjoyed about talking to racers at any event is how myopic each person's view is. You know, if you ask a racer, hey, what happened to the race? And they're looking at you. What you tell me? All I could see was the hub in front of me. You know, I have no idea what was happening. And that's often the case in the, the fog of any bike race, but particularly so at Roubaix, where, as you've mentioned, visibility is often quite limited, literally by dust and the, and the chaos. So I want to dig into th- to four things today. The takeaways from the women's race, the takeaways from the men's race. The uh, the tech kerfuffles and damages and how that affected the race, what new gear we saw, what crazy gear we saw, what wheels we saw shatter into small pieces. Uh, and then lastly, or maybe firstly, maybe we could just dig, we could put the first uh, right up front here of wet Roubaix, dry Roubaix. Which is better? Discuss. And uh, Jim, I don't know your take and I don't think you know you know mine, but uh, you go first. Which would you prefer to see as a journalist on the the side of the road in the farms and, and there in the velodrome, a dry Roubaix or a wet Roubaix? Well, any Roubaix is a good Roubaix, but a dry Roubaix is a much better Roubaix than a wet one. What? Uh, Why? Yeah. Anybody Explain who yourself. watched either, if you watched either of the races this weekend, which you should have, you will, it was no, it was undoubtedly more exciting racing than last year's boggy crash fest see who can stay up right longer i just think it <laughs> it lends itself to more aggressive more aggressive racing more actual racing rather than a game of, of sort of of luck and of how how well you can handle these cobbles and i know that how well you can handle the cobbles is a skill in itself but i prefer fast Fast and furious rather mm. than dampened. Mm. I would much rather see a wet Roubaix. You know, if I'm out riding my own bicycle, of course I want it to be a nice, sunshiny, warm, still day. But for the spectacle, I enjoy watching a rainy Roubaix. Not that I wish ill on any of the racers for sure, but the, as you mentioned, like handling on cobbles is a thing, and that's part of what defines a good bike racer and watching watching the women and men navigate slippery treacherous corners on their bikes I, I feel like that that adds that adds drama for sure and and it it uh amplifies the luck quotient for sure as to as to who wins you have to have to be strong and fit and tactically savvy and in the right place at the right time and you have to have the proverbial lady luck smiling on you which can make it a cruel game for those playing it, but uh, I think adds to the drama for those of us watching it, whether we're in the press room or standing in the in a muddy field 
uh, race side or, or watching on the internet or television. So that's my take, Jim. Wet Roubaix any day. Well, we'll agree to disagree on this one, shall we? Fair, fair, fair. <laughs> so the, uh, the women's race, this was the second ever Paris-Roubaix Femme. Um, the course had, a, you know, I'm just trying to remember the, the stats here. It's not an identical course. It's a shorter course. Uh, I want to say there were 17 cobble sectors for a total of about 30K, uh, including some of the, the big, fi- nasty five-star ones, Monson, Pavel, and Carrefour de Labra. Um, you were there at the, the start and finish. What were, you know, we don't want to get in the, in the minutia of the racing. Those of you who want to watch it, who haven't seen it already, by all means, go watch the, the replay. Uh, but what were some of the takeaways for you from Elisa Longo Borghini's win and uh, what happened behind? Uh, I guess the real big story is that Trek just totally dominated the race, uh, both with Longo Borghini, the second long range victory for the team in the race uh, in two years. Well, in the race's whole history. Yeah, Liz- Lizzie Dynan winning the first one last year for Trek Segafredo in a similar fashion. Yeah. Uh, and the, the team as a whole just dominated the whole day. Uh, they got three riders in the top 10, two on the podium. And it was just, it looked like, a. I mean, you can analyze any race retrospectively and say it was perfect, but it really did look like a, a complete masterclass. And interestingly, they all referenced how amazing their bikes were, which is something we're going to touch on a little later. Um, but yeah, it was it was a truly phenomenal performance from Trek, and it was fitting that Longo Borghini finished it off thirty five k solo. Great, great race. Yeah, countering uh, yeah countering a move where there was another Trek rider in the mix. We saw uh, the another Trek Elisa, the world champion Elisa Balsamo, getting disqualified. Uh, not the way anyone wants to end a race, and it was a particularly and I was surprising. It, so she did this, the, this, the so-called sticky bottle. She had a flat somewhere like 50 K or so to go was chasing back and got behind her team car. Standard practice came up alongside her team car, standard practice. Her, you know, director held a bottle out the driver's window. She grabbed onto that again, standard practice. We've seen this a thousand times. She held onto it for a bit while the, the driver hit the, hit the gas pedal again, standard practice, but then the deviation, she held on a scooch too long and the uh, race jury tossed her out. Now, one thing I don't know, maybe you do. Is there a rule for exactly how many seconds a rider can hold on to the car? Because if, if there is, I haven't seen it. I'm not aware of one. I think it's down to the jury's discretion and whether it's done really blatantly or in a sort of, a way that could really impact the race. Uh, so if it was a rider that was tw- 10 minutes off the back, then they could probably get away with it for a lot longer than somebody who is sort of midfield. And I believe when it happened to Balsamo, she was sort of like mid-pack and she was chasing back to the lead kind of groups as opposed to being way off the back of the uh, the whole caravan. But I'm, I may not be 100% right. But yeah, I think it's a discretionary thing, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, and and we've yeah, I I th- I believe it's the it was the duration 
of the time that she held onto the water bottle because we saw m- multiple riders doing that. And you see it all the time, like in the, in the breakaway, somebody will drop back to their team car, have a quick chat, get a bottle, hold on for seconds, and then magically get a bit of a acceleration to get back into the, into the line of riders. Um, so that was a, that was, yeah, a, a bit of drama and not the way the, the world champion wants to retire from Paris-Roubaix. No, no, it's uh, if any rider is going to set a good example, it needs to be the world champion. And I think, I think, uh, yeah, everybody knows everybody takes sticky bottles, but when you take it too, when it becomes too sticky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and despite that, uh, as, as you mentioned, Trek had zero problems continuing to, to smash on, not only, uh, with Elisa Longo Borghini taking the win, but, being followed by Lucinda Brand in third and another Trek Sigafreda rider in seventh. Those three riders in the top 10, not too shabby. SD Works coming home second with Lara Kopecki in the, the sprint of the six or so riders chasing uh, for the podium. Any other team second would be great for the mighty SD Works. Felt like coming up a little bit short and it's almost uh, analogous to, you know, perhaps on the men's side, Quickstep being like the team. Um, and, not uh, coming up short on the on the win in the Roubaix Velodrome. Yeah, SD Works, uh, this, this team that uh, sort of you can compare to some extent to Quick Stepping that they've got. You know, they are typically the dominant team, and they race in a similar way with a lot of options. And for them, they had Kopecky as one of the five star favourites for the race, and she she really did light up the race multiple times. But it felt like she was there perhaps on her own too much uh and ultimately just didn't have it to go with um Longo Borghini when she went and it does seem to them that second isn't really good enough a big race like this so I mean you you can't say that their spring season was a failure by any means but they will be they will be uh, aggrieved to not have won Roubaix yeah yeah for sure it's Quick Step has definitely been coming up a lot shorter than SD Works, who, like for instance, Lara Kopecka won Tour Flanders just a couple weeks ago. So it's yeah, not not exactly apples to apples, but uh, definitely Trek one, SD Works zero, at the Queen of the Classics on Saturday. Hats off to Elisa Longo Borghini for a heck of a performance. On the men's side, on Sunday, 160 miles, 258 kilometers, 55k of pave. Ineos finally got the the big one. What were what were some of your takeaways from the men's 119th edition of the Perry Bay? I think the biggest one is what you just said, really, that Ineos have finally captured the hell of the north. Uh, so for a very long time, Ineos or Team Sky have been uh, they've had a lot of flack for being boring grand tour machines, which admittedly through kind of 2012, 2015 or so they were. And also they, the second thing pointed at them a lot is that they just couldn't race classics or they weren't interested in classics. And this year they've just completely blown the classics to bits. So, you know, um, they won Roubaix, Van Bala, who won, he also finished second at um, the Tour of Flanders. Mikhail Kwiatkowski won Amstel Gold Race and um, Magnus Sheffield won uh, another classic, the name of which I've won. Brabant's Pill. And all through all through the spring, 
Ineos have just absolutely torn up the classics and to see them winning the final cobblestone monument of the season really puts a puts a kind of a point on the end of the season just to really reinforce that they are like a new force in the classics and a, a complete they kind of race like a completely new team now absolutely one surprising point for me was the i don't want to say the fall of Matthew Vanderpool but coming in all the talking heads our little heads included were pointing to him as as the five star hands down favorite it was his race to lose he never looked like he was in a point of dominating that race and so i'm wondering what your thoughts on how much his absence his injury forced time away from road racing played into that you know we we busted his back at the olympic mountain bike race last fall uh was off the bike uh skip cyclocross and then came back with the vengeance seemingly milan san remo was in there at the kill at the end uh and then seemed to be doing just fine through the, the early spring classics um taking victories including at uh tour flanders well i'm no i'm no coach or kind of physiologist <laughs> but uh from yeah, I, I think you could draw a line between the fact that he missed like his whole base training season basically you know when you're out there doing 100 miles every day just tapping away and the fact that he sort of burned really bright and then faded as if he just didn't have the condition to race consecutively that hard for kind of five or six weeks. Um, perhaps it was just that lack of lack of mileage in the legs sort of caught up with him a bit. Um, but also you can't always, you can't blame the rider for failing. I think in this case, it was Ineos. Ineos won the race rather than Vanderpool lost it. If that makes sense, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. he yeah. he did look he did look a bit out of sorts. So he kind of looked a bit out of position and a bit like sluggish. But I think the race was so red hot that there was more factors than him being a little off par. For, play. Sure, for sure, and and you know we saw Enios in force at the front of the race throughout. You know, from like 150k, like when the the first split started happening. You know, there was seven Enios kits at the front of the race um when ghana came off uh, you know they still had the full squad there later on yeah albus and phoenix vanderpool's journey jersey was the only one from that team you saw so like he's having to respond to everything himself or let things go and hope somebody else will bring him back whereas yeah Enios was having even towards the the end when van barlow was going off yet you saw ben turner still up there in the mix and obviously having numbers uh, is always an advantage. So yeah, that's that's fair point. But uh, you know, flashback to the women's race. Uh, Lisa Longo Bergeen was sick coming into it. I mean, she wasn't sick on the day, but she wasn't even planning to to take the start uh, from a ways out. Correct? Yeah, uh, she was talking in her press conference how she's been sick for quite a lot of the spring. With uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but she. Her team initially she wasn't going to race Roubaix until, and then just recently her team sort of convinced her to, and she just seized seized the day to to take like the biggest win of her career, and it does make you think that perhaps Roubaix is a race where there's so much chaos, so much carnage that if you have maybe if you don't have the very strongest legs, if you have 
the right racing instinct and the right kind of turn of luck at the right moment, it can all work out for you. Another rider that impressed me, Matej Mohorc, racing super aggressively and relentlessly. You know, he initiated a move from, you know, well over 100K out. And like so many others, suffered a flat tire and would just kept kept coming back and kept coming back and would go off the front again and again. Um, I certainly enjoyed watching him race. He's, he was not a rider I had put down as, as a favorite for the podium. I think this spring is just kind of proven that Mohoric is a rider that can do everything pretty well. Um, like I, I wouldn't really have put him down as a San Remo champion either, but he's just can do everything. And he's got real smart racing skills. And I've got to admit when he was in the breakaway and the, the TV cameras were showing his bike close up, I was probably everybody was inspecting for some sort of like special, special gadget or special suspension. But, um, uh, there was it was a pretty straightforward uh, setup uh, apart from the tires, which I think we'll touch on a bit later on. But just for the final takeaway for the men's race is well, we can't we can't not talk about Dylan Van Baarle, who is the rider that no one talks about and that is just absolutely incredible. He's probably the most until now was probably the most underrated classics rider in the peloton, but. Second in the road worlds last year, second in Flanders, and now he's done this, and I think now he's going to be treated a lot differently. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, we were just speaking before turning the record button on here on this podcast about uh, how Van Barla had been off the radar of some folks. I had remembered his second at Flanders, even though there was so much uh, focus on the Tade Pogacar Vanderpool duel that that uh, Van Barla's second, I think, got lost for some folks i had completely forgotten <laughs> that he was second at road worlds uh so why is that I mean, how how can a rider of such stature just be um, ignored in some ways by uh fans and journalists perhaps maybe uh, any us at least when you're on a team pidcock who generates so much interest maybe slightly kind of uh shouted out and also he's off the bike he's quite unassuming like he's very kind of quiet keeps himself to himself but in interestingly he said in his press conference that finishing second in the world's really sort of boosted his confidence and really told him like proved to himself that he can win these biggest of races and he said that was a real turning point for him so perhaps now that he's got Roubaix under his belt as well, there's perhaps there's a lot more to come. But he is he is 29, so you know he's not he's not old, but he's not young either. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch him. Yeah, I enjoyed listening to what Stefan Kung had to say after the race about how when he Kung and Wout Van Aert were chasing Van Barla, they were both flat out, you know, two man time trial, no no games, as going absolutely as hard as they could and making no ground on him and he was just like yeah hats off that was a hell of a ride <laughs> yeah it really was so yeah one one last takeaway for me was yeah mr mr wout himself uh it was interesting to watch how early in the race he was kind of caught up in the in traffic and then it seemed to be um where we expected him to see where we expected to see him at the at the front of the event had fairly terrible luck in a race that is known for terrible luck. Had f was on four different bicycles <laughs> during the during the course of the race. 
uh, and even had a, a wheel basically fold up and shatter underneath him. Um, I was impressed by it. In, sp- in spite of all that terrible luck, still, still came out uh, finishing on the podium. Yeah, and let's not forget he had COVID about ten days ago. Oh, that's right, that's right. And and he hadn't he hadn't raced. He missed Flanders, missed Amstel. Um, and I guess just the fact that he came back from all of that and convincingly won the sprint for second shows what what an animal that guy is. Really, like he's 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 something else in terms of consistency and just yeah, outright kind of strength. But I think it'll be interesting um, to hear your thoughts, your very initial thoughts, Ben, on what was going on with those wheels. Because yeah, what happened to Van Art? There's there's a video doing the rounds of him changing his bike, and you can see his rear wheel. It's basically folded in half, kind of at the hub. It all the same, exact same thing happened to his teammate Christophe Laporte, who obviously would have been using the same wheels. Um, so interesting what might be going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And we're you know certainly trying to track down Shimano for their take on what has happened, but you know, broken wheels, flat tires, certainly uh, relatively commonplace, but the dramatic fashion watching a carbon wheel fold and happen twice, uh, certainly noteworthy, even at Roubaix. I was impressed, you know, watching that clip of Christophe Laporte ride out his, wheels looked like he was sinking into the ocean he had a foot out and was like paddling along like he was riding a little kid's razor scooter then it seemed to be fussed at all with it yeah um, it looked like he'd done it before which is concerning <laughs> <laughs> yeah so was it the rim or was it the spokes that you know what that's a chicken or the egg thing short answer i have no idea what which went first um but yeah full-on full-on failure and, and hats off to those guys for being able to to keep it upright as they're Bike was sinking. Um, certainly not something that Shimano wants to see. Who, who's to say whether there was what what caused that? But uh, we're looking into it, and we'll get a story up as soon as we can on that. It it wasn't wasn't all bad tech though, was it, Ben? Uh, you got some. We got some little bits of info about this new uh, new trek that uh, Longo Borghini and her team rode to victory. Uh, Longo Borghini said it was the perfect bike for Roubaix. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about what you know about that. I, I wish I had inside information, um, but I can tell you what I have seen, you know, so Trek has had, it has three families of bikes. There's the Amanda climbing bike, the all around race bike, uh, the Madone aero bike, uh, and then the Domani endurance bike. Uh, the Demonis had what Trek calls the ISO speed decoupler for a few years now. It's basically a pivot point. Uh, and they've had it, that at the rear and then at the front. So the rear is where the seat post joins in with the top tube and seat stays. And it just allows that that to flex, basically, just giving the rider some comfort uh, over bumps without having any or having minimal side-to-side flex. They had that at the front, at the head tube also uh, for a couple years. So we, our photographer James Start was able to get some shots of this new bike, the new Dubani that Trek is still not speaking about, but the riders were racing. Um, and we were able to see a number of key differences. One, the front ISO speed's gone away. Uh, two, the adjustability at the rear has gone away. 
the old one you could um, unbolt a little panel underneath the the top tube and basically set how much flex the whole system had. That's gone away. When I was talking to uh, Trek oh, a year ago or so when the new Checkpoint Gravel Bike came out, that did not have the adjustability. And they said that was because they had found that their riders, both professionals and everyday consumers, just never messed with the uh, adjustable settings. So they're like, well, why why have it if nobody's using it? So I'm sure that, that saved some weight. Um, and then a big change was getting rid of the the seat mass, which has been Trek's thing for some time. So instead of having a standard seat post, um, the frame, the seat tube effectively continued upwards for quite a bit. And then there is a seat mass, like a cap that sits on top. They've done away with that. And now it's just a standard seat post. I'm guessing that will save some weight. Um, certainly allowed riders to use different posts. It's like a D-shaped post, like a we've seen on... Um, giant bicycles and and others, a bit of aerodynamics and a, and a bit of built-in flex. So the Damani remains the the endurance bike, um, a popular one among everyday riders because it's more comfortable than the ultra stiff, you know, ultra aero bikes that we see in racing. And and Peru Bay is a is a it's a wonderful event for so many reasons, um, but it's one of the few places where some technology that World Tour racers use. Uh, crosses over fairly well to what those of us who use every day um, also can appreciate. Um, where, yeah, comfort is a thing for most of us, you know, compared to like a you know, these world tour racers where aerodynamics is and if, if ultimate efficiency is everything. And if it's a kind of a harsh ride, whatever, they're trying to win races. <laughs> the rest of us, you know, we're trying to enjoy our Saturday weekend ride, you know. Um, so other things we've seen come out of Roubaix, like the first Shimano GRX derailleur with a you know, clutch derailleur to keep your chain from slapping around. You know, that first popped up notably under under Trek um, at the Classics and was, was used in Roubaix. And now that's showing up on gravel bikes everywhere. So yeah, a lot of good stuff. Um, other things we saw, uh, Matej Mohorch did not use his dropper post of Milan San Remo fame. I saw him at Gent Wavelgum where he was back on his normal aero bike. Hey, uh, Mr. Mahorch, where's, where's the dropper post asking jokingly. And he very earnestly said, well, it's, it's, this is not, not a lot of downhill on this race. It doesn't make sense. I know. So, but uh, he did have big fat, relatively big fat, 32 mil tires, uh, for Roubaix. The only rider that we were aware of that was on those plump tires, the 30s seemed to be the de facto standard for, for women and men. Otherwise, he had yeah straightforward aero race bike. Um, the Dylan Van Barles Pinarello, um, the only concession to comfort he made that I saw was just a little extra bit of tape on the drops of his bars. That Pinarello's got a pretty interesting integrated cockpit, like so many top end bikes we see now, where the bar and stem are one thing. The drops of those bars have a they're like sculpted for aerodynamics, which looks good in the wind tunnel, it, but it kind of feels a little strange in your hand and it's like a, a sharper point on the palms. The tops having aerodynamics uh, works for ergonomics too, because your, your hand rests on the flat part, but on in the, the, the front part of the drops, it makes it kind of more pointy where your palm contacts that. So he wrapped that double. One, uh, one interesting thing I saw just on the bar tape note was there was a picture, uh, on the Monday, the day after the men's race of Wout van Aert, uh, 
he was it was on his Strava of his hand after Roubaix, <clears throat> and like the whole palm was swollen, and he had like blisters all over one of his fingers, and uh, he said that he'd done the whole ride like one handed, which was presumably a joke. But those <laughs> those flat top kind of aero bars unwrapped must must really uh, really hurt. And one one piece of tech which everybody got quite interested in before Roubaix, which we believed we were going to see but didn't, was this tyre pressure adjustment system that DSM have been working on, uh, which is basically a button, like a handlebar-mounted button, which can increase or decrease your ty- the tubular tyre pressure. Um, so in the case of Roubaix, you would, you would kind of like soften it for the cobbles and pump it back up again for the pavement but in the end um the men's and the women's teams neither actually used the system and i spoke to um lorena weavers from the women's team for the women's race obviously and um she said they've not even tested it yet but i do believe from dsm that uh you know it's it's in the works and due to be trialed in a race very soon so that's an interesting one yeah the scope atmos is like a $3,500 retail piece so there's like a bladder that sits wrapped around the hub and then there's two buttons you can put on the handlebars to increase or decrease pressure just sitting there back and forth between that bladder around the hub and the the tubeless tires it and so she said we said there's had been zero testing yet by the women's team that's surprising. Yeah, she she hadn't she, before the horse sounds like. Yeah, when I asked her, she said, "Oh, I don't know anything about." Well, she, <laughs> she knew what it was, but she said, oh, "I don't know. I don't know anything, you know, about how it works or what it is. We've not tested it yet." And when I spoke to DSM in the week before, they were kind of all set to give it a full trial, uh, a full launch. Sorry, on the Friday, so that it could be, you know, have a spectacular debut at the weekend so i mean the only thing i could think is that maybe they had last minute reservations i i guess if you're going to test a piece of equipment for the first time in race conditions roubaix is perhaps not the best place <laughs> <laughs> perhaps no. not the best one to do it at um yeah so but i, I imagine it's something that will come to light soon yeah um, i mean the, the concept's fascinating and and part of the uh, the trick of Roubaix is that there's two very different things going on and that you can't optimize your bike for both. You know, like the you know men's race, 160 miles, or, you know, two, 260K, 55K of which is cobbles. So if you optimize just for the cobbles, you'd be running a mountain bike, honestly. <laughs> you know, like a, a cross-country mountain bike would be ideal for that. Uh, but then for the other 200 kilometers, you would be a fool to be on a mountain bike, and you'd want like your regular aero bike with with deep wheels and high pressure tires for the lowest possible rolling resistance. So we've you know we've seen some some teams in years past do bike changes or be prepared to do bike changes, so they'd be on an aero bike for the first you know almost 100 miles, 100k for sure, uh, optimized for pavement. And then try to do a quick bike change to do something that's set up for the for the cobble. So the idea I think is sound, going back and forth between high pressure and low pressure. Uh, the execution, who knows? <laughs> you know, we've seen it'd like be a the, real disaster if it fails. It could be though, a right? total disaster. Yeah, yeah. Like if you just get stuck on one end or the other, 
um, yeah, not ideal. Um, how will that work for wheel changes? Because flats are obviously a reality as we've, we've seen. Um, we've, we've seen something similar with the, the on-off switch. Like, for example, the specialized Roubaix bike, you know, having a, the little suspension in on the front end under the stem where you've got the, the on-off switch on top of the stem. Um, and we saw Philippe Jobert switching his, his shock on and off as he, as he hit the cobbles and then hit the pavement. Um, so there's, there's certainly something there and that's, you know, part of what makes Roubaix so fascinating to watch is, is not only teams and riders, but the, the manufacturers try to figure out how to optimize for such a, for such a crazy event. You mentioned the, the, the bare bar tops being particularly harsh. I, one subject I enjoy exploring with riders and teams is, okay, how, how do you set up your hands? <laughs> because we've seen everything from double, you know, not only double wraps of bar tape, but sometimes with gel padding underneath and double sets of gloves and chamois cream on the hands underneath the gloves, trying to, you know, uh, minimize the friction all the way to riders going with no gloves and then even bare bars. I spoke with a world tour mechanic, Ralph Wittenberg, who was arguing, Hey, why not go no gloves and no tape to just minimize the friction? That's you're still going to get all the impact, but if you're holding on tight, you could reduce the friction, which is what causes all those nasty blisters. And we saw, we saw the gamuts out there. Surely, though, just the bruising, just the out, you might not get like friction, but you're just going to get so much like ever battering. Like it's, it's one thing or the other, I would have thought. Yeah. 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 I'm sure everyone who participated in the, the Saturday and Sunday races are still feeling it this week and will be for some time. I think just my, just my final point on that is when you go to Roubaix and you see the riders up close after the race, you seriously understand just how hard it is because not not a single one of them was in any fit state at the end like <laughs> it's it's unbelievable to see a rider after Paris-Roubaix honestly it's it is incredible if you saw somebody like that after any other race you would be like sort of checking them and you would be like oh my god what's happened to them but every single one of them at Roubaix looked like they'd just yeah been through hell which is fitting because of the, net, the, the race of the, the name of the race. James Start had a, a number of great photos from the weekend. He just you know put up a gallery called The Beauty of Roubaix. And one image I particularly enjoyed riffing on your idea of seeing riders looking like the shell-shocked was Vanderpool sitting in the showers well after, you know, it's like an hour or so after he's finished. He's already showered. He's sitting there somewhat refreshed uh, in his, you know, t-shirt and shorts and, and, um, slip-ons and just has a 10,000 yard stare like and start mentioned that he'd just been sitting there for you know half an hour just staring off start with saying is you know reflecting on what could have been but my take of looking at the photos like this is a man who is blown out yeah he's probably just very very tired <laughs> <laughs> yeah certainly an excellent weekend of races already looking forward to next year's Mr. Jim Cotton, thanks for your time. Thank you for being there uh, in France covering the races for us. Enjoyed it quite a bit, and we'll look forward to uh, your next reports as the season continues. Pleasure. Thanks, Ben. And thanks, readers and listeners, for going along for the ride. And thanks for listening to the Villain News Podcast. <laughs>